Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 80. My name is Arvin. Joining me as always, my colleague from PensionPlanPuppets.com. It's Acting the Fooliman. Hi, everybody. How was your uh, Saturday night, Fooliman? It was very nice. I went to my parents and we decorated the Christmas tree super early because my parents, kind of unlike me, have like a buzzing social calendar and are too busy to do it in the next two months. So, yeah, that was my uh, riveting Saturday. How about you? Yeah, it was good. I uh, had some friends over, so I wasn't able to watch a whole lot of the game. Um, but it, it was it was nice. It was I, Apparently, I didn't miss that much, except Mitch Marner might be dead. Yeah, that's too bad. We were hoping to have him alive for this season, but... Mm. Darren Ferris is insisting that the corpse of Mitch Marner should be the highest paid corpse in the league. <laughs> oh, I laugh, but I cry. Uh, yes. Yeah, so I, I guess we should elaborate. Um, Mitch Marner stepped on a stick. Uh, it was sort of a scramble off a draw. I don't think there was anything malicious in it. Um, maybe he could have called a trip on the play. At most, it would have been a minor or something. But he went down the wrong way. And it looked like his ankle kind of twisted in the direction that ankles are not ideally supposed to twist. Uh, he immediately had a lot of trouble getting to the bench. Like, he looked like you do when you lose a skate blade. Like, you're clearly trying to avoid putting any pressure on that foot. And he made it to the bench. He tried to come back for a shift. He almost immediately uh, stumbled and then headed back to the bench. He tried to come back out one more time on an ad break and just sort of, you know, skate around the ice a little bit. And then he left. So the optimistic interpretation is he felt like he could come back um, repeatedly for whatever that's worth. So maybe it's not that bad. But hockey players have a way of doing that, often with injuries they should not be risking. And I wonder if finally the trainer just said, no, you got to get off. I mean, high ankle sprain is what I've seen speculated, but we don't know that. All we know is it's an ankle from the team at this point. If that is what it is, it's not a fun injury and it would keep him out for a while. Obviously, that's a huge loss for the team. Yes. Um, Darren Dreger just tweeted about eight minutes ago at the time of recording um, that he's scheduled for an MRI today to determine the extent of the injury. So we will get some news, hopefully, on it. Uh, as, as I said, he's definitely missing the game against Chicago. Um, this podcast will hopefully be out before the game against Chicago. And hopefully nothing that happens in that game makes this uh, <laughs> renders this completely out of date immediately. You know what? We should just say super pessimistic things the whole podcast to sort of taunt the irony gods. And maybe they'll sort of pay us back by having Toronto blow out the, the Blackhawks. But Oh, that, that would be great. I mean, the Blackhawks, to be clear, they're not a good team. No, no, so, not anymore. And they're also on the second half of a back-to-back. Yeah, so it's not like we should be at a rest disadvantage. Yes. So there isn't a huge excuse, I think, for um, for the Leafs against, against the Blackhawks. Mm-hmm. But anyways, moving into the game itself, I mean, I, I'm not terribly useful here because I, I didn't get to see a lot of it, but... What were your thoughts from the game? From from afar and from the parts that I did watch, it seemed as though it was a bit of a story of the season and that the Matthews line was doing quite well, and then everyone else was just kind of ambling along. Yes, I think that that's very accurate. Matthews and Nylander had stretches where they were genuinely brilliant, as good as any pairing that you're going to see. Um, when those two are on, they're unstoppable, and, you know, notwithstanding that we've occasionally had some complaints throughout the season, their stats together are terrific. Um, they were earning their money last night, and so no complaints there. Uh, the play on the second goal uh, with Matthews attempting a lacrosse goal and then bailing out and then doing a pass to Nylander, which he tapped in, that was a lot of fun. It was a really nice goal. So that's the good part, is that we have at least one Bonafide, really, really good first line. And ideally we'll have two, except Mitch Marner is out. Um, and even without, yeah. even when Marner was there, that line hasn't fully clicked this year. Um, now, Tavares' numbers last night, at least his shot attempt numbers, they were quite strong. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously half the game was played without Marner. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we, we really do need that line to kind of step up, don't we? Yeah, I mean, that's the whole, the whole structure of the team now is... Two first lines. That's the strength. And when that works, we're good. When that doesn't work, we are kind of questionable. You know, and we don't have quite the same safety net 
with Kadri, although I think Kerfoot has actually been about as good as we could have hoped and maybe even a little better. But, yeah, I, I mean, that's certainly a noticeable loss. Uh, the Leafs actually played, as odd as this is going to sound, almost airtight defense for the first period, which is not a phrase I'm used to describing the Leafs as having. Uh, if you look at the two goals, one of them on the, the, the penalty kill was just a totally unstoppable play, and you can't really play it defensively. Like, it was a point shot that hit a guy who was standing on the goal line in the knee and deflected as sort of like a weird bouncing flip shot into the net. There was nothing you can do about that. Um, so the Leafs actually played a good defensive game to start, and then they got down two goals anyway. And they kind of opened up a little bit, and on the whole, it didn't look that great in terms of numbers, in terms of game flow. They pushed back as it went on, so it got a little better. I think this is really becoming a bit of a referendum on the strategy that we're using, which is we take the fourth line, Frederick Gauthier and friends, usually Dimitro Timashop and Nick Shore lately, and we just give them every defensive zone start possible. Like, they're on there to take face-offs, um, shoot the puck out, and then change. Uh, those are called FOGO shifts in analytics parlance, face-off, get-off. And so, not surprisingly, their shot numbers are garbage because they have almost no opportunity to get any shots for, only shots against. And so they're kind of getting buried. And then you have the Matthews line, which is doing quite well in shot attempts. And then Tavares' line is kind of hit and miss. Is that a worthwhile trade-off? Is something that we're kind of wondering. And I think that that really was brought to our attention last night, just because the numbers are so stark. Yeah, I, I mean, it's certainly something that makes sense intuitively, right? You, you, you're essentially saying that the difference between, say, Frederick Gauthier and Austin Matthews and their lines on a defensive zone shift is not as significant as the difference between Austin Matthews and Frederick Gauthier on an offensive zone shift, to, you know? Um, so you just tell them, okay, we have this puck in our zone, get it out of there, get off, and then let's let our big hitters play offense. Mm -hmm. And certainly, you don't want Frederick Gauthier playing offense. That's certainly not a strength, and that certainly is the strength of Austin Matthews. Mm -hmm. So it's, it, it's logical. It's just it's hard to really assess whether it's working because the team's overall numbers are, are really nothing to write home about at all. They're, they're very mediocre when you look at um, expected goal share. Right? Yeah. Worse than mediocre, actually. They're, it's poor at this point. Yeah, and that's something uh, we'll get into, uh, probably. Which is actually a good time to do this transition. So, in the past, Arvin and I have done something called real or fake. And it's well-suited to being done at this time of the year, where we look at some sort of trend that's been going on in the early parts of the season, or some sort of opinion that maybe would have popped up in that time. And we say, is it real or is it fake? And the very first one is the Leafs are now a shot share team and not really an expected goals team. I'm going to say that that is real almost by default because I don't think I have a choice. The expected goals have gone to shit, frankly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so just to provide uh, some baseline here, um, the Leafs currently, in terms of shot share, Corsi 4 share, they have, according to Evolving Hockey, 51.81% uh, of the shot attempts in a game, which would rank 8th in the league. And this is done through an elite offense by Corsi 4, so by shot attempts, and a good defense, an average-ish defense. Mm. Right? So the two of those combined gets you to the point where you're... Uh, you're a, a top 10 team by, by this measure. So it's like that's 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 not bad at all. Um, now, by expected goals, the Leafs get 48% of the expected goals, which is a quite bad number. And this is done through a middling to poor defense and a middling to poor offense. And that that is definitely not what you want. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that is that is like very much not what the Leafs usually are and what we would expect they should be right yeah and the reason 
why this gives us some pause, why this trend, why we're questioning whether it's real or fake is because for the last three years, ever since, you know, the Matthews, Nylander, Marner kind of trio hit the NHL, the Leafs have been remarkably consistent in terms of their shot share and their expected goal share. They were basically hovering around 50 to 51% in shots and maybe slightly above that in expected goals. Right? And the way they did this in particular was even more consistent. Every single year, they were a top five offense and a bottom five defense, whether, whether by shot attempts or expected goals. Mm-hmm. Right? And HockeyViz has these beautiful shot plots um, that kind of map out the, the density of where, where teams take their shots. And the Leafs had this huge blob of shots that they took right in the face of the opposing goalie. Mm-hmm. And that's how they generated offense. And this year, we, we just don't see that, right? That offense, that net front offense specifically, has completely dried up. And replacing it has been point shots from both points. Now, last year in particular, one of the changes from the Leafs uh, last year versus the years before is that they took more point shots, particularly from the left point. But those point shots also kind of serviced um, serviced their, their net front chances as well, but whether by creating scrambles or high tips or things of that nature. Mm-hmm. So now it's just, well, the Leafs are still taking those point shots, but for whatever reason, there's no resulting net front scramble. There's no, um, there's, there's no net front chances for basically any group. I, I mean, the, the Matthews line is the one that has kind of maintained their standard from last year, the closest, I would say. Mm-hmm. But on the whole, like the, the, the team's, offensive results are have, have just simply gone down right that, that that's all that's all there is to it and that is certainly concerning um especially when you, you know you're a team that hopefully is a, is a cup contender so it's 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 a trend i hope is not real but i don't see why it isn't at this point like i mean 18 games is not the largest sample size in the world, but that's not nothing either. Mm-hmm. I, I I think, you know, when it was 10 games in, well, when it was 10 games in, we still had a very good offense. <laughs> when it was like 12 games in, it's like, okay, you know, you want to stay at the course. The fact that the shot data was kind of messed up gave me more pause. Mm-hmm. And now it's like, well, we have to change our priors a little bit at the very least. Um, yeah. It's worth saying, I know I'm rambling here, it's worth saying the Leafs defense has improved from last year, whether by shots or expected goals. It's just their offense has come down to a greater degree, particularly by expected goals. Yeah, and, you know, that's concerning because we were so long so used to that being the strength. And all the theories of our success were premised on, okay, well, we have this one shining thing in our favor, and we can kind of count on it, and now it looks like it's evaporating. And... I won't lie, for a long time last season, I think Arvin and I were kind of confirmed in a lot of the stuff that we thought about the team. You know, like we found ourselves saying they are who we thought they were a lot because they mostly just leaned into what they already were and tried to do it again, but more so with John Tavares. Like, it wasn't that drastic a change, believe it or not. It was adding another very skilled player. But they were very recognizably the same team in terms of statistical profile and in terms of how they played from the eye test. And something is kind of different now. Um, We kind of got a little bit annoyed uh, a while back about people complaining constantly that Mike Babcock is stifling the offense with his emphasis on defense. And to be clear, that complaint has been happening for several years. And prior to this season, it was obviously wrong. Yeah, they... To put it politely, it was bullshit. Yeah. And now, something is happening, it looks like. Something that does give us pause. And there have been personnel changes. The loss of Jake Gardner, I think, maybe plays more of a role than is intuitively obvious. In terms of, one, whenever he's on the ice, his teams always dominate shot share, but they also do quite well on expected goals. But... He's good at moving the puck up to his forwards, but he doesn't shoot a lot from the point. 
So I feel like he might be unusually well-suited, maybe? Yeah, I mean, when I think of Jake in the offensive zone, I think of him kind of walking the line, finding a seam, and then when he is firing a shot, it's either just a low shot to generate a rebound or he's trying to pass and cycle the puck, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, just, yeah, just to, just to add more numbers to this, I, the we, we've talked about how Matthews and his line are the only ones kind of generating offense, but e- e- even they are not generating it to the degree they did last year. So, to wit, uh, Austin Matthews last year, 3.17 expected goals um, per 60 when he's on the ice for his line. This year, it is 2.52. It's a very significant decrease. Now, the defense for Matthews has gotten way better from 2.87 expected goals against to 2.01. This is not adjusted for his usage or anything. So it, it, it's income to you. It's just It's literally just a measure of what he has done when he's on the ice or what the team has done when he's on the ice, right? So the defense, I mean, one way of looking at it is, well, the defense got a lot better, but I'm guessing his usage right now is a bit more offensively tilted than it was last mm-hmm. year, right? If you're starting in the offensive zone more, you're, deep, you're going to record... Uh, fewer expected goals against because opposing teams have to travel 200 feet before they get a shot right so i mean even for matthews who has been good this year i would say uh that has come down for Tavares, uh 3.22 expected goals for 60 last year 2.32 this year so basically like what a 65 70 percent of what of the production from last year it, it's really it's a lot and obviously uh the same is true of mitch marner because they Tavares and Marner played together um, a lot. Nylander, 3.11 expected goals per 60 last year, 2.52 this year. Right? It, it's yeah. very significant offensive declines from our star players mm-hmm. in terms of what they're, you know, putting up with, uh, in terms of the results the team is putting up with them on the ice. So, yeah, like that, it's, it's, uh, a very worrying trend. I've said that like six times, but it really is. And I don't know what's causing it. I really don't. Yeah. I mean, I can observe a few things, but the thing is, is that when you talk about, you know, I test reasons for this one, it's not very systematic, but two, you run a risk of blaming the change you don't like on anything you see that you don't like. But I will notice the stretch pass is basically gone gone is an overstatement i should say but like it's much less relied on than it was the forwards are coming back lower in the zone there are shorter breakout passes and that's a more conservative strategy and intuitively you would think that leads to better shot control but worse expected goals because when the stretch pass goes through you're setting up a very dangerous rush chance where you have a chance of getting into a very high danger position and generating a super dangerous scoring chance so that part seems to line up to me. It feels like the Leafs' defense is taking more shots than they did. And uh, Katya pointed this out. But last year, Ron Hainsey and Nikita Zaitsev, who were in our top four and who were both playing heavy minutes, basically didn't shoot very much. It just was not something that was on the menu with them. Now we have three guys in our top four who all shoot a lot. And the only one who doesn't is Cody Ceci. And his shot rate is about the same as Ron Hainsey's was. But even Jake Muzzin um, is a big gunner from the point. Maybe more than is immediately apparent. And so I'm wondering if that personnel change, that move to more point shots, is really both leading to higher shots for, but also a worse expected goals. Because again, those are low percentage. I don't know 100%, but it does feel like the Leafs are defaulting to the point more than they once did instead of working it back into the zone, into the danger areas. So, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> it, it's interesting because if you look at those defensemen shots, um, though, at least the holdover defensemen, compared to last year, they're taking fewer shots per minute this year than last. Muzzin took 14 shot attempts for 60 last year, 13 this year. Riley, uh, about 15 and a half last year, 14 this year. Uh, Dermott, 12 last year, 8 this year. And, mm-hmm. and so on. And uh, Barry is shooting more than, than Gardner, for example. Um, Hall is shooting a lot more than he did last year, but he, he's played like a, a smaller amount of minutes. Um, CC shoots less than Zaitsev, if you can believe that, actually. <laughs> um, and a similar amount to Hainsey. 
So it, it doesn't appear that the uh, they're taking, in absolute senses, a lot more shots, but it certainly seems like it's a higher proportion of the shots that the team is taking. And that could be because before the Leafs seemingly used point shots to initiate a lot of their offense in creating net front scrambles and whatnot, and they, they're not creating those this year, so they're taking the first shot in the sequence, but then the rest of the sequence, the ideal sequence, never happens. Mm-hmm. Right? That's one That's one possibility. This, there's also, you know, many other possibilities where, you know, they're, they're just taking a lot of point shots because they're not able to get any closer. It's not something they're trying to do. Uh, it's just something that, that's happening. They should maybe try to change up their system in order to get closer to the net, but that's not working. The safety valve is the point shot. Yeah. I, I mean, when we say default to the point shot, that may be literally true. Like, you don't see anywhere else to go because you're boxed out of the slot and you're not either willing or able to fight through. I don't know. I do think you miss Zach Hyman, and I know that it seems like I'm talking about a complimentary winger an awful lot in this context, and yeah, sure I am. But also, Zach Hyman pretty much lives at point blank, so like almost all the shots that he takes are super high percentage shots, and he finishes on them at a somewhat lower rate than you would expect. But I wouldn't be surprised if any line that he's on starts doing better by expected goals for that reason. Yeah, but at the same time, like, as we just covered, the Matthews line is not generating offense like they did last year either. Exactly. And right, and that, that has nothing to do with Hyman. Mm-hmm. Now, you can live with the Matthews line just doing what it's doing. You know? Yeah. Because if you get that kind of shot share and you're still positive in expected goals, whatever. Very very positive in expected Like, more positive this year in expected goals than last year. It's just coming through not as good offense and much better defense, right? I, and, you know, people can say, oh, you know, their usage is kind. Yes, they're doing exactly what they should do with that usage. Yeah, they're, exactly. They're destroying that's, it. You that, know, that's what they're for. That, yeah, yeah. You know. <laughs> like that, that's fine. If, if he's getting, you know, high 50s um, shots and expected goals in terms of shot share and expected goal share, we'll live with that with the usage he's getting. There's no issue with that at all. Yeah, it's the rest of the team where you start thinking, okay, is this a road to success? Is there some sort of way by which maybe you can live with these metrics looking not so great is something that I'm wondering, like, is it possible that we're somehow kind of beating the system with basically it's going to have to be high PDO. Like we're going to have to outshoot our expected goals. Well, to some extent we have some high percentage shooters on the roster, but I can think of so many teams that believed that they had beat the system, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And they basically had not. Uh, the Washington Capitals are an exception. But they also have one of the deadliest power plays in history over a sustained period. And ours is kind of scuffling at the moment. So that's one problem. I don't know. Uh, I do think that this is worrisome. And as much as we've said, look, some of the criticism of Mike Babcock is premature, is what have you. It was also premised on... An, for me, saying that, you know, he's done some good things. On that he'd built a team that did some things very successfully. And one of them was lots and lots of good scoring chances for. If this team puts up results like this on an ongoing basis, at least you've got to be compensating with a really good shot share. And even then like i won't lie i find this genuinely worrisome and much more than whatever is like the twitter irritation of the week regarding what he said in a press conference i think this is actually a real concern yeah for a contending team yes i i agree with that completely like this is a fundamental change in what we're used to seeing for from the leafs and it's not in a good way no and i, I mean i don't know if it's going to get much better with mm-hmm. Mitch Marner out, that's the yeah, thing. Yeah, you know? yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's going to have an impact as well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, just we, we'll have to see how these things develop. I do think a big thing that people talk about is like, well, they're not fun to watch this year. And part of that is imported expectations. You know, this team is going to be defined by what happens in the playoffs. And it's hard to enjoy the regular season as much when you've got that hanging over you. But also... They are playing a more conservative style, I think. They are better defensively, and they are worse offensively. I think that that adds up both in terms of numbers and eye test. And you can legitimately say, 
I want my team to be more entertaining if possible. The question is, is this method eventually going to lead to more wins? Right now, it doesn't look like it. If this is still kind of a refining uh, process of working out, of getting better, of learning into a new system, or if the Leafs have actually found a way to kind of outsmart the metrics, okay, then maybe it's worth it. But... Yeah, I will say I'm a little concerned here. I One last thing, though. I don't think that this is accidental or that this is something that's happening without Caldubas' knowledge. This seems like a very specific decision that's being made here in terms of really, really like aggressively defensive usage of your fourth line. Yeah. And Mike Babcock has done some of that before. I actually remember him doing it with Byron Fraze back when it didn't really matter if the team was good. Mm-hmm. but it is a notable change. So it's something to keep an eye on for sure. Yeah. Okay. So I think we're both, I guess, kind of on the, the, the real, real and we're not happy about it <laughs> yeah. um, thought right now, which, yeah, I mean, hope, hopefully the same. I mean, if anyone on the Leafs is listening, first off, please start, please respond to my emails. Um, <laughs> secondly, please beat the brakes off Chicago and make us look dumb. I know. And, like, clobber them in expected goals, why don't you? <laughs> yes. Um, okay, so the next real or fake thing that we are going to discuss. Um, Kerfoot already has shown himself to be an elite-level third-line player, which is a bit of an oxymoron, but bear with me, and he will 100% be worth his contract barring injury. That's so real, man. I love yeah, it. Yeah, no, I, I'm very, very real. And... In the next kind of discussion we'll, we'll have for the next Real or Fake, we're going to talk about the other part of this trade, and it'll probably be a less happy discussion. So let, let's <laughs> prolong this for a little bit. Kerfoot is really good. He's a great player. I, I, I like him a lot. Yeah, I, I've loved what I've seen from him. Uh, great playmaker. Um, does really kind of sound two-way player. The only thing he doesn't really do is shoot much. He actually sustains a absurdly high shooting percentage because of that, because he only shoots when he basically has no choice. Or, like, the net is directly open in front of him. But, yeah, he's been really reassuring, and he's taken a lot of the sting out of that cadre trade, which otherwise would be pretty painful. Like, I'm not psyched to lose Dozen Kadri. Yeah, Kadri is the best player in that deal. Yeah. Right? We said, we said that at the time. We're saying it now. Yeah, it's it's still true. But he, he has taken a few too many minor penalties for my liking, but that seems yes. to have infected the whole team. I don't know what's going on there. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. So well, I guess we're going to backtrack for one second. Part of the reason that the Leafs also, like, their offensive struggles at 5v5 are highlighted, and another way they're, that they're different than last year, is last year they never took penalties, and they had, contrary to what people said, a very strong power play mm-hmm. um, that, you know, started off the year gangbusters in terms of goals, but when you look at it at, at any point in time, was always generating shots and expected goals. Mm-hmm. This year, they are taking a lot of penalties. They're not drawing a huge amount. But even when they do draw some, it is so bad. You had a very funny tweet, I think maybe two Saturdays ago, <laughs> diagramming the least power play. Um, and it's, it's sadly accurate. Um, yeah. So anyways, that, that's, that's a bit of an aside. But that also kind of exacerbates the least five-on-five five offensive issues as well. But back to Kerfoot. I mean, I think he's done everything we could have asked from him and and you know we said this before and we don't want to keep repeating ourselves but his job is to be 75 percent of nazim kadri for 65 percent of the price mm-hmm. and he's doing that so far i mean down to the taking too many penalties yeah sadly but uh yeah he's he's delivered um just to put some numbers on it but he's got he's had great shot numbers um really encouraging as with the whole team the expected goals are a little worse they're just narrowly positive but that's fine um I, yeah, I really can't think of uh, anything negative to say about him except the penalty thing. Even the, the shot choice is, you know, once in a while you're like, please just pull the goddamn trigger. But he's been good. Um, and this is notwithstanding, you know, he's he's got eight points in 18 games, which is not going to measure up to Nazim Kadri. For one, Kerfoot is not going to play on the first power play unit anytime soon. Mm-hmm. And Kadri's a genuinely wonderful power play player. Yeah, he's outstanding. And you are accepting some trade-off there. And part of the theory we talked about 
where when you're making this trade is you're saying, okay, we can still put up a really, really good power play without Nazem Kadri. So well, this eh. is a, yeah, it's funny how that has worked out. <laughs> <laughs> so may have to revisit that angle of the analysis. But yeah, other than that, I, I would say that I'm exceedingly happy with Alexander Kerfoot. And I think he's going to lock down third line center on this team for the next few years. Yes, I, I agree with that completely. Um, and that, that contract, it does look like a very, very nice contract. And I'm glad, you know, we, we have our faults with how Dubas has handled his RFA contracts, particularly the high end. And, mm-hmm. you know, you don't exactly deserve a gold star for, you know, extracting value from mid-level RFAs. That's, it's, well, even Dave Nonis did that. Yeah, like pretty much everybody pulls that off. But, but it's nice nonetheless. It. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, so that that's positive. Uh, now we'll move to something that is less positive. Uh, the statement is Tyson Berry is not one of our best three defensemen at present. Oh man. <laughs> so okay, so basically what this comes down to, if you're gonna say real or fake, it's you can boil this question or this statement down to is Tyson Berry better than Travis Dermott right now? Yep. Because. I think there's zero argument for putting Barry above Riley or Muzzin. Yeah, I think that that's pretty definitive. So, I'm going to say no. He's still better than Travis Dermott. Uh, again, his shot totals are actually really, really good. You may notice this is a recurring thing. When we talk about, like, the Leafs have merely good as opposed to great shot totals... But it really is pronounced. Like, everyone who has bad shot differentials played on the third pairing or the fourth line. And that's it. And everyone else is, like, at least above water, and sometimes very much so. So that's good. Uh, Expected goals are kind of crap. And he doesn't look great at all. If you want to import the eye test here a little bit, it has been a struggle for him. I, I'm still saying Tyson Berry is the third best defenseman. But I don't think that... I mean, I think he would say so far his season has been a disappointment. I'm I'm going to go with real. I, th- I, I think Dermot's better than Berry right now. I, I've, I'm so low on Tyson Berry as a player at this point. And I sincerely hope he makes me look incredibly dumb over the course of the rest of the season. Um... Because I, against my kind of statsy judgment, or, or I, I was like, I got very excited about Barry, mm-hmm. right? So I, I, you know, when, once the trade happens, we look through the stats. I remember watching Barry, and he's certainly a very fun player to watch. And e- even that hasn't really kind of translated to uh, to Toronto yet. But mm-hmm. Barry's always been a guy who, of statistically, <laughs> you know, dubious value. Yeah, he never seemed to perform as well as it seemed like he should, except in terms of he got a lot of goals. Yeah. He's a gunner. Yeah, exactly. So I'm always kind of leery of those defensemen. And as we said, when the trade happened, Barry is exactly that type. And there there was definitely some concern there that he, he certainly is not a Hampus Lindholm type who just kind of drives play and has a very obvious... Um, impact on the team's success when they're on the ice in terms of just controlling a lot of the shots and controlling a lot of the chances, mm-hmm. right? It, it wasn't that, and that concerned me, but there's so much to like about what you see from Barry. He's such a fun player to watch, or he wasn't in Colorado, and so active, and you can definitely talk yourself, and I think to some extent we, we both did, and I did especially, we talked ourselves into the idea of, well, he, imagine him combining with these high-end forwards. Mm-hmm. And it just has not come together at all. And it's not come together in a way that makes me feel that, like, I should have just trusted what the stats said. Because they were bang on in this case. That he, He's a volume shooter who shoots from areas that are not incredibly useful to shoot from. Mm-hmm. He is really, really bad defensively. Like, all of the defensive ability of Morgan Riley without the offensive ability at this point. Which is to say, he's it's been really awful. It's yeah, it's been it's been tough. I mean, the issue with him is like okay, 
he had some use as a power play quarterback. He's not getting that here. Right, and there's also people saying, oh, you know, you should put him on on PP1 um, because the power play has been bad. Katya had a good post about this, I I think, a week or two ago, saying, like, you know, what's the advantage of putting putting him there? So, as far as I can tell, there's there's a couple reasons. One, you think he's going to help power play one more than Morgan Riley. I mean, sure, maybe that's possible, but the main offensive advantage that I see that Barry has over Riley is... A, good, a better shot. I don't want him taking shots. Yeah. Like we have four fucking for. superstar forwards on that power play unit. <laughs> why is why do we want Tyson Berry taking shots? Yeah. Right? That's not what it, it's it, for. It, no. And then the other part is, you know, oh, you know, ba- we're, we're neutering Barry by not using him on the power play. And again, this, this goes to something that people struggle with. The Leafs do not exist so that Tyson Berry can feel good about himself and play better and get some stats. Yeah. The Leafs exist to win games, mm-hmm. right? If you think Barry is better on the power play in a specific way than Riley, then sure, you can put him there. But I don't think the defenseman is the problem on that unit. Like That's the thing. I, I don't think defensemen have that much of an impact on the power play in general. Yeah. I mean, there are, there are exceptions. Uh, John Carlson, maybe. Even so, I'm not. Like, he's probably the, the third most important guy on that power play unit. So. Yeah. Maybe even fourth. TJ Oshie. Is, yeah, is right. yeah, incredible <laughs> on the on the power play, right? I mean, it's. I I I think, it's certainly, it's not. I'm not saying every NHL defenseman could do a, a job on the power play equally well, but I don't think adding Tyson Berry to the first unit is going to like magically solve the power play issues. No. In fact, I think it might hurt because one thing I think Riley does have over Barry is that he is so much more mobile. And yeah, that's not to say mobile. that's not to say Barry isn't mobile. It's just Riley is probably one of the most agile defense defenders in the NHL, right? Mm-hmm. And given that it takes the Leafs about an eon to collect themselves and regain the zone every time the puck is shot out, because they have to wait <laughs> for someone to do a triple axle behind the net, you know, at three miles an hour, so that they can drop the puck to them, and everyone else <laughs> needs to stand perfectly still while they do so. Like, I, you can tell I'm 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 so annoyed about this power play. I. I'm the, you know what, and you can do a victory lap about it, though, because you said, like, I don't know about this at the yeah. time, and I was like, well, you know, maybe a change is good, and wow, no, change is bad, let's never change anything ever again. Yeah, no, it's <laughs> it's awful, and, and this power play just doesn't make sense. Anyways, back to Barry. Um, yeah, it's just, I, I don't doubt that he's better than he's shown, right? I, I even, um, even the negatives... Like even the stats that were that we had on him in, in Colorado that painted him to be like not as good as you would expect, they still said, yeah, he's an average defenseman, mm-hmm. right? And then, you know, I think our at least my my thought coming in was, I w- I would put him as like a good number three defenseman, mm-hmm. right? So, so I would say slightly above average, bumping him up for his shooting talent and and you know kind of a nebulous. I'm not sure the stats are perfectly capturing him because he is such an active player. But yeah, it's, it, it really hasn't come together. Part of this, again, is also poor shooting luck. He hasn't scored a goal yet. He, you would expect him to have scored a goal yet, or at this, po- at this point. Part of that is just, you know, a bit of shit luck, really. You can't do a whole lot about it. At the same time, if you're going to praise him for his shooting talent, he does bear some responsibility for not using that shooting talent, essentially, mm-hmm. right? Like, I, I, I'm not comfortable saying, oh, yeah, it's just bad luck. Right, like if, if you're if one of your calling cards and one of the reasons you're going to ask for an eight million dollar contract next year is because he scored a lot of goals for a defender, you should score some goals. He does have one expected goal this year, and he scored zero. So you would expect him to get a little bit luckier as the year goes on. But yeah, I, I think Dermot is is better at this point, and and I'm certainly somewhat skeptical of Dermot in a higher role. Although I do want to try him there at this point. Yeah. Like, without any reservations. Um, cause just because the other options are clearly not really working. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, Dermot at least has always driven play extremely well. And I, I, I'm more and more kind of convinced that I, I, I should just ignore... We should just ignore points, especially for defensemen. It, they do not matter. Yeah. I, I think, you know, Mike Babcock had a quote. And he said, like, look, it's a different situation than he had in Colorado. He's got to adapt 
to the situation that he has and take the opportunities he's got. And then immediately, of course, Twitter went in on him for that. And I was like, well, you know, tough titty. Like, I'm sorry. This is the situation he's in. He was traded to a team that had a very well-established power play quarterback in Morgan Riley, who's been Who, part of very successful units for several years. And who has to the be clear, totals. is a better defenseman, period. Yeah. And, you know, like, I'm sorry. That's just kind of how it is. I'm not averse, by the way, to try and vary on power play one. I don't think it'll help, but what the hell? Try yeah. stuff. That's fine. I just don't think it's not a miscarriage of justice. Yeah. And, you know, as much as I sympathize that, you know, a big part of his game, he's not able to employ it to the same extent that he's used to. At some point, you know, it's like you just got to adjust. I don't think that he's quite lived up to expectations. And that's the reality. I still think that there's a lot of obvious talent there. And I've seen so many third-pairing defensemen look good on the Leafs that I'm a little reluctant to say Dermot's with past them. But that's also something that I'd like to try. So, yeah. I don't think that this is mostly a story of Tyson Berry being kind of smothered by a system that's unwelcome and is not using him much. He's getting a lot of ice. He's getting some time with some very good forwards. I just don't think that it's been there to the extent that we hope. Yeah, and I mean, I, th- I think if anything, the Leafs have kind of paired Muzzin, or sorry, paired Barry with Muzzin, who is a perfect complement to him, mm-hmm. right? Muzzin is that strong defensive presence, strong physical presence, who covers for a lot of the things that Barry doesn't have. It, and it's just that pairing hasn't been very good, at least by expected goals. They, they, As you said, as you noted, they do have the shot share, but everyone does on the Leafs at this point. Mm-hmm. So it, it's, you know, I... I think you're being kind of more measured here than me, which is which is good because I, I'm just I'm just frustrated by watching this. Mm-hmm. Right? It, it does get it does get very very um, aggravating, and especially so actually right before the first goal gets, I watched the first period yesterday, <clears throat> and there was this sequence where someone fed the puck through to Nylander. So it might have actually been Barry. Nylander was basically alone in front tries a wraparound and ends up fanning on it he could have done a lot better there the puck uh and then sends the puck back to barry at the point mm-hmm. barry takes like literally the stupidest point shot i've seen in my life there's a point shot with claude Giroux, lit four four feet in front of him not even from the furthest back part of the uh for the furthest back part of the offensive zone like at that point just dump it in Anyways, Drew blocks it because he's four feet in front of Barry, and there's no angle at all. Um, and then the puck goes the other way, and that's how Myers scores the first goal. Now, this is, there's outcome bias here. It, it could very well be where you know, let's say he dumps the puck in, and then for whatever, and then the Flyers break out and they score the exact same way. I'm like, oh, Barry, why don't you shoot that there, you moron? <laughs> right? Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm. This is certainly you know not not the most robust criticism of, of, of Barry, but that, that was just, that was a very emblematic play to me of, of this season where I think that wasn't necessarily the best decision. And it also just blew up on him in a kind of unfortunate way. Mm-hmm. Um, because this is Hockey Night in Canada, they show two replays of Nylander uh, fanning the puck six touches before the puck ended up in the Leafs net. And it was not Nylander's man who, who scored. Um, I'm pretty sure if Hockey Night in Canada did a profile of the Kennedy assassination, after the bullet went through JFK's head, they would do a pan to William Nylander and be like, we don't know, was he out of position? Like, they just blame him for everything. It was it was, it was ridiculous. I, I, I was watching it. Um, and I'm like, they, they showed Nylander the first time. I'm like, was that Nylander's man? Nylander was, was, was the last guy back. And there was, like, he had the other Flyers defenseman uh, who was not yeah. really in the play. And then I watched the replay. I'm like, no, that was not. Nylander's guy that was Janssen's I think um and Nylander like he was the last guy in on the fortune he was the closest to the net so of course he's going to be the last one back right that there wasn't really a problem there and then they show the so they show the replay and then they show Nylander again and I'm like what what is going on here like (laughs) so bizarre um but yeah I Barry has, has I think I think certainly not lived up to the expectations 
thus far. Um, and I, I hope I hope he proves me wrong. I hope that you know there that he isn't just an active defenseman who actually doesn't end up doing a whole lot to make his team better because that seems like kind of what he has been so far. Yeah, he's a guy who has a lot of obvious talents that don't lend themselves to the team succeeding around him, it feels like. And I hope it's better than that, but I don't know. So yeah, that's kind of the less fun thing. And now we come down to the last one. The Leafs are a top six team in the NHL. Fake as hell. It's very hard for me to argue that that's real. And I was really hopeful that they were. But they're just not right now. Yeah, I mean, they, I, I, I'm not saying they cannot get there. They, mm-hmm. they might be able to, but the results this year haven't been at that level, right? And until they do, then I, I, I don't think it's fair to say that they're a top six team in the NHL, right? And <clears throat> you can blame Babcock for that if you want. You can blame the players. And, and in reality, of course, there's a hugely complex web of, you know, effects here and blaming it on one person or one group of people is inherently reductive mm-hmm. but as a whole yeah the Leafs have not been a top six team in the NHL now I'm, I'm not like saying oh the Leafs are terrible they're a disgrace they're soft and they're a terrible team they're never going to do anything they, they've been I, I would say an average to above average team mm-hmm. um, but certainly not top six now, if, if their power play was working like last year's, I would say they're probably a top 10 team because th- then they're more or less a break-even five-on-five team with elite special teams, which yeah, that's basically Washington. Yeah. Right? Or at least that's, that, okay that's that. Washington in the past few years anyways. Mm-hmm. So the lack of power play success is really quite damaging here. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think you can't... The, the argument for the least being a top six team is a theoretical one, not a not one based in what has happened so far. Yeah, it's they have too many good players not to be. That's the only argument that you can make. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's just it's it hasn't been there to the extent that we would hope for. And that is really disappointing to me. You know, I get some of the disappointment that people feel, and I, you know, try to make a point of keeping in perspective on it, but at, at the same time, it's like, we want this team to look like a contender. Now, to be clear, once you get into the playoffs, if you're in with a chance and you're a pretty good team, you know, shit happens. The best team doesn't win a lot of years in the NHL, but it doesn't feel like this team has really maximized their chances uh, to the extent that we would hope. And I'm kind of waiting for something to come out of this sort of experiment in defensive solidity where we're presumably a shot share team now. I guess this is what we're doing. And if that, you know, if, if that trend continues and is maybe strengthened a little bit and we become a really good shot share team, then maybe I can start talking myself into it again. Right now, this team looks not so great. Yeah, okay. and I, I think both of us were kind of pretty optimistic in the early going when the results were actually, you know, first six, seven games, they, they were very strong. Mm-hmm. Right? But they have definitely come down since then. And also the fact that the corrected expected goals data points to the Leafs being such a, um, I guess, such a poor team, or such a, I guess, me, below average team by, by those measures. It, it's certainly not comforting. Right? So, yeah, I, I mean, I... Mean, I really thought that when they corrected that, the Leafs would look more like they were used to because I was like, well, for three years, this team with a lot of the same players has been a huge expected goals for team. And then when the error came out and said, it said, oh, there are some issues with shot locations. I was like, oh yeah, that's probably why they don't look like they're doing that anymore. But now we have a correction and we have some subsequent data and they both kind of suggest here we are, you know? That, that worries me a lot. Yeah, no, it. I, I think I think it's right to worry you. <clears throat> it, there, there's. Yeah. I, I I don't know. I want I want to kind of strike a balance here between being. I don't want to be excessively negative and be, what are, what our commenters have kind of, termed the the moped brigade. And to be clear, I th- I think there is a significant 
component of people or sorry, significant portion of people who find almost anything to be upset about in mm-hmm. in the Leafs results. Like I, I don't think the Leafs are a bad team or hopeless or anything like that. I, I, I just think they haven't been as good as we would hope. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, like, I don't know. Do, do you have any thoughts on, I guess, that the sort of interaction of the people consistently complaining about the Leafs and how we feel about them now? Yes. Uh, look, I think that there are complaints about this team that are legitimate. And I actually think that those are weakened when you go after Mike Babcock on everything. Like when every word out of his mouth, when anything that goes wrong with the team is pinned on him. When there are arguments made that do not have clearly much evidence in support of them one way or another. Like the stuff about like, oh, we played the starter on the wrong game of the back-to-back. All this sort of stuff. I think mostly that was people just looking for something to get upset about after a loss. But when you say this team is not getting the scoring chances for that we're accustomed to with the same personnel, there's some time for that to work out. That's a shift. There's clearly some sort of shift going on, I think. I don't think this just happened. And I think if that doesn't start leading to some kind of positive result that we can point to and say, okay, this is paying off. That is a real objection to Mike Babcock. And that is the kind of objection that does get you fired. I still think he's going to get the year, by the way, unless the team implodes. But yeah, I I think that the, the fact that there are a lot of bad objections that we've seen, and it's frankly, eye roll inducing for me, doesn't mean that there aren't good objections in there. There aren't good criticisms in there. And, yeah, and I think there are. Um, I think we've been consistent in that. When, when we ha- when we discussed Babcock, I think two weeks ago, we, we said there are valid arguments against Babcock, and I think a lot of those have only strengthened since then because we have an additional two weeks of the Leafs being the team that this this type of team, the type of team that is not really getting the most out of. It, it's offense, or at least relative to previous years, right? So there are valid arguments against Babcock. There are valid arguments against Dubas as well, to be honest, right? Like the, mm-hmm. that extra 200K for CC. that why? Why did that happen? We yeah, and it stings. It, it like does it sting, turns out. Right? And then, I mean, we all took it as a fait accompli that, oh, we're going to overpay Marner. We didn't have to. No. No, no one didn't. put a gun to Dubas's head. Like it, he, he, that's just a mistake, right? And yeah, you can argue that he was put in, it, you know, he was put in a difficult position for sure, right? Uh, I, I certainly wouldn't do any better, but I mean, at the end of the day, Dubas makes seven figures because he is supposed to be able to survive these very difficult positions, mm-hmm. right? And not let things like this affect the like the media and the the hubbub about the team affect the contract at the end of the day, right? Mm-hmm. Like it, it's. We, we said it at the time, and we kind of just... We didn't actually discuss it that much because it was so kind of obvious. Where it's like, oh, hey, yeah, this is an overpay. It's a big overpay. It's a big overpay. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And uh, it's like, there's no getting around it. Like, no. it's just too much bloody money. <laughs> yeah, it, it, so. it, it, it's not good at all. And there, there's there's blame to go around, you know... There's there's plenty of blame to, to go around. It's just make intelligent criticisms of, of the people that you're criticizing. Right? And yeah, if, if you... Uh, the key point is that we've talked about the Leafs' kind of lack of offense and their and their shift away from their style of the previous years. If you're going to criticize Babcock or anyone for the Leafs' bad offense, you have to acknowledge that for the past three years, their offense has been ridiculous. Yeah, that's the thing, is if the argument has just been, oh, he stifled them because he's an old Saskatchewan stick in the mud, and he talks with an accent. And by the way, I'm, I'm being glib there, but I also think that that's not nothing in terms of the criticism about him. Like, there are a lot of people who react to Babcock's persona and his personal style and his role in a pretty negative way. And I think that leads to a lot of the desire to just criticize him for everything under the sun. But at the same time, it's like, you can construct real arguments against him. It's just, yeah, you have to acknowledge this isn't something that he's always done. And I frankly don't buy that somehow he's been trying to do this for four years and just all of a sudden it kicked in. He was really he was know? really bad at stifling offense for three years and then he figured it out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Congratulations on your personal growth. 
I think that there has been a change here. And changes take some time to implement, but at the same time, they do have to pay out eventually. And this change is the kind of one where I'm not even tentatively very happy with it. You know, if we become some sort of dynamite shots team, great. But all I can think of is that, okay, we've totally sacrificed the shot results of our fourth line and a little bit our third pairing. Is that good? Is that in some way a trade-off where it really pays out much more than we're accustomed to measuring? We're not the first team to do this. I know uh, the Canucks did this with the Sedins and Manny Malhotra, mm -hmm. who would play very heavy defensive zone starts. I don't know. I'm at that point where I'm like, I can see some thinking that goes into it. I can see some logic behind it, but it's not as convincing to me as I would like. That's kind of where I'm at. Yep, I agree with that. So, we people actually really responded nicely to um, our bad takes segment last week. So, we do have a couple more. Uh, one thing I want to mention, we normally talk about bad hockey takes. Um, last night, Don Cherry had what I would call just a bad life take. Um, in which he essentially blamed immigrants for not wearing poppies and not supporting the veterans of the Canadian Armed Forces who fought for the freedom of Canadians in both in Canada and around the world. And we don't really have to discuss this too much other than to say that I think there's very little argument that it was at worst, or sorry, at, at best xenophobic, at worst, you know, virulently racist. Um, the conflation of buying a poppy with supporting veterans is kind of a bit insane. To me, it, at the end of the day, it's a poppy. You can support veterans without buying a poppy. You can buy a poppy and then do nothing for veterans besides that. Like, it, it, it's not an indicator of anything, really. If he left it at the idea of, you know, I wish more people wore poppies to support the troops, then sure, that, that that's fine. But he didn't. He specifically singled out uh, immigrants. It's also apparently unaware of the fact that many... Um, I guess many non-native Canadians fought in World War One and World War Two and fought for freedoms that they didn't even have at that point. So it, it, it's none of this is surprising if you know anything at all about Don Cherry. Um, Fuleman, you wrote a very nice article in the summer about why his time, I think, should be finished um, as mm -hmm. someone who has a huge platform on Canada's national broadcaster, and I know he's technically a Rogers employee now, not a CBC employee, regardless. Um, yeah, it, it was very disappointing to see. Um, I, I think it's not controversial to say that. And hopefully uh, this sparks some change, although I'm quite confident that it will not. Yeah, look, I'll, I'll just say this. I'm just tired of the song and dance with Don Cherry, of like the arguments that are basically chasing our tails about like, oh, was this specific thing racist or he's just an old man or all this sort of stuff. And it's just these endless soul-sucking arguments with a lot of people who openly or not so openly just want to take a shot at certain groups of people, at immigrants, at Europeans, at basically anyone who's not Don Jerry's kind of people. And it's just exhausting. You know, at the millionth time we've had to have a conversation like this, we probably should stop, should not have to keep saying like, hey, Don Cherry is xenophobic. Like that should be proven. That should be established. And we shouldn't have to put up with this shit anymore. Yeah. And I mean, like I said, there, there, there was a possible point he could have made that was, I mean, I, I would have glorified the military and veterans, um, which some people might have an issue with, but you know that that that's certainly less objectionable than what he what he actually said. If, if you're just saying you know people should wear poppies, it's a, it's a nice token, it's, um, it's a token behavior or gesture to show that you know you, you're respecting people who who did sacrifice a lot for Canada and for for the world and to to fight you know atrocities across the world. Um, that's one thing, but the the singling out of immigrants specifically the the people like you or people like or people who come over here or people like them 
all these kind of dog whistles that we've heard a lot of times. It's not, it's not something I think we need to relitigate. Mm-hmm. Right. Cause whenever you have this conversation, there's also the song and dance of people who come out and say, Oh no, that wasn't actually racist or xenophobic. He's just making this point. And it's like, well, you, you can make that point without singling out a huge population, a huge portion of the population. One that, you know, I would think by and large does appreciate everything that Canada has given them. For sure. Okay. So moving on to, um, actual hockey takes. Did you have any in particular? No one was actually as bad as I would have liked this week. I was very disappointed. <laughs> um, I have one and it's not addressed at a particular person. It's just a general kind of comment. Um, the uh, hockey stats website evolving hockey has recently released their uh, gar results goals above replacement slash wins above replacement they're i'll use the terms interchangeably and rapm regularized adjusted plus minus um there are those numbers for this season now gar attempts to be an all-in-one stat that captures a player's contributions to his or her team uh rapm is a context adjusted stat that you can think of it as like a super wowie. It takes in every single shift that a player has played and uh, their teammates and their competition and the zone usage and all those sorts of things and adjusts it essentially to see how well is a player impacting his team's ability to drive play in shots, expected goals, whatever. So um, these are both very, very cool and interesting endeavors. I, I wrote about their, uh, their GAR model for the Athletic and I've written about RIPM for, for PPP. Um, so you can find those online. I think if you just Google, if you just Google my name and then a couple of the keywords there, you should be able to find them. They're both excellent stats. I use RAPM a lot. Um, you know, frequent listeners of this podcast will, will know that, but a PSA here, do not use GAR or RAPM in 15 to 20 game samples and pretend it means anything because it does not mm-hmm. in those samples. It is incredibly incredibly volatile rapm even from year to year changes quite significantly which is why when you're actually assessing a player's value people statisticians and hockey analysts tend to use two to three year samples right 15 games is is nothing right and if you think of it as a super wowie you also have like you can think you can see why a small sample would be problematic because you wouldn't necessarily have um data for players in a range of situations Usage is going to be more skewed and more um, local in small samples. Over large periods of times, it averages out across the league and you get different players playing against a lots of different types of players in lots of different zone situations. When you're 17 games in, you don't really get that. Mm-hmm. So it, it is not a, it's not a valid argument to point at an RAPM chart over 15 games and be like, ha ha. Again, I am right in my analysis. <laughs> Although right. it's always fun to do that, even if yeah. no basis for no, it. Yeah, it, like it, it's totally... you, have, you have to be very cognizant of the, of the sample size you're using here, right? It, they are, you, you, certainly you can use them in small samples, right? They can be informative in small samples. It should not be the start and end of your argument. And that actually goes more for GAR than for RAPM, because RAPM, you, it, you, it's effectively like using a better version of Corsi Rel. Right, and as Katya likes to say, you have to make the distinction between what this player has done versus what this player is, or their "quote unquote" true talent level, right? Because mm-hmm. all of these things, RAPM, uh, Corsi Bell, they're all essentially random variables. They're they're they purport to be measures of some level of talent, but they themselves are random. They're not intrinsic to the player. But Gar in a fifteen to twenty game sample, I, I don't think it has any real use in that small sample. So the way Evolving Hockey's GAR model works is that it's, it's descriptive. It's meant to be entirely descriptive. As a result, um, the offensive component is driven in large part by goals for and on ice goals for. So you can probably guess what the problem would be if you use a very small sample. It's that someone who's on a PDO bender is going to look like one of the best players in the league. Mm-hmm. Right? So, you know, it, it's... It, it, it's one of those things where you, you have to be aware of the shortcomings of the stat you're using, right? It's like um, 
Spider-Man's uncle. What's his name? Uncle Ben. Um, yeah. With the right power comes great responsibility. Right? We have these really cool yeah. stats, but you have to use them responsibly. Yeah. I, I think uh, I think worth mentioning is the reason that this maybe comes up is that these stats maybe don't jump off the page at people who aren't like, you know, obsessive weirdo hockey nerds like us. <laughs> but you see charts that make the rounds uh, or visualizations, like really effective visualizations. And those are really intuitive and they're easy to understand. And you've got to be careful if those are based on small samples. They can be misleading and they can be misleading in an appealing format that's easy to understand. When you'll see a player's, you know, bars jump right out at you and be like, oh, he's bad. You know, I, I think that that's something to keep in mind when you're seeing just a cool looking chart that seems to answer a question. So, Yeah, exactly. Um, was there anything else you wanted to add? Nope, I run my string. All right, perfect. Um, so I think that's that's everything uh, from us. We'll try and get this podcast up before uh, the Chicago game. You can find all of mine and Fuleman stuff at penstrandpuppets.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at RV and AT Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next week.